Welcome to this week's message from Mountain Park Church. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we hope that as you listen to today's message, you feel challenged and inspired to give God more room to work in your life this week. So we are uh, we're trekking through um, this subject matter, talking about heaven and what God has in store for us. And over the last few weeks, we have been uh, talking about what happens when we die right now. We've been talking about um, what uh, theologians and scholars call the intermediate heaven or the present heaven. And we've been talking uh, about what that is like. And if you want to listen to that, the recording's got some glitches and problems with it, but you can go online and listen to that. And, and, and we discovered some new things, I think, about what is awaiting us and, and our, our family and our friends, those who know Jesus, what's awaiting them right now, actually, in the present heaven. And and last week we talked about um, this question of, is, is God going to have to destroy everything and remake it from scratch? Is he going to have to destroy us and our bodies and the universe? And, and as, we, as we look through scripture, as we walk through the Bible, we see this pattern emerging. And it's not one of destruction and annihilation. It's of rebuilding and, and renewing and restoring. And we talked about this, this idea that, that, that if God had to totally annihilate the whole universe and, and wipe us out of existence and, and recreate different people and different planets and whatever, that, 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 that Satan would have won. He would have so corrupted the earth with evil and sin and dysfunction that it would have left God with no choice but to abandon his original plan and start over. But we've recognized that that's not what the Bible says. God does not have to abandon his original plan. Satan has not triumphed over God. God has a plan to restore and renew and make right. And that not only has significance for the heaven that's waiting for us, but it has significance for our life. That there's nothing we can do or walk through. There's no place we can go. There's, there's no thought we can think. There's nothing we can do that God can't restore and renew in our lives. But the enemy wants to make us believe we're a lost cause and that this earth is a lost cause that our families are beyond repair, that, that what we've done has broken things so badly that, it, that there's nothing else but to completely wipe it out and start new and fresh. But that's not what the Bible seems to say about it. Today we're going to look at a little bit of what the Bible says as it relates to this new earth and what it might be like. And, and I've said this before in this series, and it's still true today, that as we read these verses, there's, there's many different ways that over the centuries people have interpreted these. They've interpreted them symbolically. They've interpreted them as sort of apocalyptic foretelling, but, but using imagery that's metaphoric. Some people interpret them completely literally. And... And over my course of study, I find that I, 
I find myself falling somewhere in the middle. There's some things that we need to understand symbolically, but a lot of what we say needs to be symbolic, I think is actually literal. And we've, we've kind of bought into this notion that spiritual is good, physical is evil. And that somehow thinking of ourselves as being ourselves in heaven and as this earth literally being the place where we live for eternity with God, somehow we've bought into this notion that that's, that that's less than spiritual and that somehow would be beneath God. It was Plato that actually said that uh, his thoughts were that the body was like a constraint for the spirit and the body needed to be broken and unshackled and, and so that the spirit could, could thrive and survive. And, and unfortunately, so many of us in our, our church circles have bought into this idea that spiritual is better and physical is bad and evil. And so we have this idea of heaven as this ethereal, spiritual place where we're going to float around on clouds like angels and do all these things. And, but that's not what the Bible teaches about it. And so if God is not going to have to remake everything from scratch, what is earth going to be like? What is our life potentially going to be like? Are there going to be animals in heaven? Is, and my wife loves this one because we were talking about this this week. I said, honey, I think there's going to be technology in heaven. And she looked and she said, no way. Absolutely not. I don't want to see a cell phone. I don't want to see a computer, whatever. I said, look, okay, settle down here. We're not going to fight about this because we don't really, you know, this is not worth fighting about. But, but I actually believe that God has wired us to invent and to create. When we go back, like we are today, to the, the first chapters of Genesis, the opening narrative of the Bible, what I want to first implore you is to understand that Genesis was written and meant to be a historical account, a literal historical account of what happened. Almost all Hebrew scholars and ancient uh, Hebrew scholars agree that the writing of Genesis and the intention of Genesis was not symbolic or metaphorical or allegorical. It was literal. That when Moses was writing Genesis, he was literally recounting the events that actually happened. Almost all Hebrew scholars agree that this writing is to be read this way because that's how the original author intended it to be. So before we even start, we have to find a baseline to understand what God originally did. And that the story we find in, in the beginning of Genesis of God creating the heavens and the earth and the Garden of Eden and all of that stuff is not allegory, that that's actually what he did and what happened. And then when we get to this serpent... Then we get all kind of weirded out when he shows up. Like, what are you, a talking snake that's now interacting? That can't be true. But what's really interesting as we dive into this today, I, I'm fascinated as I learn and discover. And like I said, there's so much I don't know, and I'm not pretending to be an expert on these things. But as the Bible talks about animals throughout Scripture from beginning to end, 
it says some very unique and interesting things. So for instance, some of you may know in the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, there are scenes depicted of the throne room of God and of these living creatures as they're called in our translations, worshiping God and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And our translations actually deceive us a little bit. How the original translators translated that into living creatures is actually not totally accurate. When you look at the original language in Hebrew and in Greek, it literally means animals. Animals, and from a context of wild animals, not domesticated cats and dogs necessarily, but animals. And scholars believe that the original uh, writers of the, um, or the original people who, who uh, translated the New Testament thought it'd be too weird, too weird to use animals there, like talking animals. I have a five-year-old and Paw Patrol is on repeat on our Netflix. And so I'm used to talking animals in our house. But when we read animals, somehow we just go, that, that can't even be. But as the Bible talks about animals throughout its entirety, it's talking about these creatures, these beasts and creatures that God has created. And when it talks about these living creatures in the book of Revelation, giving God glory day after day, it's talking about animals, the kind of animals that we can picture. Not these, like I always pictured these pseudo weird hybrid animals that were kind of like transformers but human figured and like you know like sort of different because I, I had trouble wrapping my mind around this and so there's some things as we read them that we need to understand as symbolic and allegorical but there's other things that we're not being less spiritual in our beliefs if we take them at face value is it less spiritual to think that the new heaven and the new earth will be here, that it will be physical, that we'll have physical bodies, that we will live in physical cities and do the things we love to do. Is it less spiritual to believe that somehow, even though God said when he created the heavens and the earth that they were good and he was well pleased with them, something happened along the way and God's no longer happy with what he made. That's sometimes our assumption. And so when the Bible talks about these things, we go, that can't be right. That can't be true. We've learned over the last few weeks that the law of continuity is essential. That you and I will be uniquely you and I living for eternity on a resurrected earth in a resurrected universe. Not someone different or new. Did you ever think that if you and I, when we die, if God just makes somebody new out of me, then I actually haven't gone to heaven. If I, myself, like Job says, I myself and no one other will see the face of God in the book of Job. If I don't go to heaven as Andrew Platt, then I haven't gone there at all. And that the whole promise of God just completely begins to fall apart. And so if there's continuity with you and I, then wouldn't it stand to reason that there might be continuity with the other things that God has made that he's been so pleased with? 
And again, this is where we, our mind just starts to play tricks on us. And we, we just look at how dysfunctional our, our world is and our ecosystem and our relationships. We, we look at how fractured and distorted things are, how, how sinful and hurtful and all of these things. And we go, there's no way that that can be redeemed. But God does have a plan to do that. So how does the Bible talk about uh, the new heaven and the new earth? We're going to hop back uh, one chapter in Revelation 21. And again, this is not, this is not exhaustive. Um, there's so much more for you to study, especially uh, in the book of Isaiah, in Ezekiel. There's so many cross-references here that I can't fit in my brain by memory, so we're just going to go with what, uh, <laughs> what I can do. Uh, Revelation 21, uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And that's what we talked about last week, that the intention of John is not to say that they were eradicated and obliterated by God, that they were annihilated, but that they, they were actually renewed and restored. And through the process of God's refining fire, they were made new. If you've ever been out west, um, especially out west, but it happens all over the place. If you've ever seen uh, a piece of uh, the side of a mountain that's had a forest fire uh, pull through and destroy everything, and if you've ever walked through an area like that years later, you'll see this vibrant green regrowth beginning to happen. And there's something, I don't, I don't even know, I'm not a scientist, but there's something in the in the soil that happens when the fire burns through that recharges the micronutrients and, and the carbon and all of that stuff that they need. And, and this amazing regrowth happens in this area of total destruction. And that's kind of the way that I think things might happen, that as God remakes it and refines and purifies his creation with fire, that out of that, and not something new, but out of that he's going to rebuild and restore and renew. So they had disappeared. And then it says, and the sea was also gone. And I just want to talk about this for a minute because this is, this is a, a verse and there's others like this that, that um, people that are much smarter than I am have been wrestling over for, for centuries, hundreds of years. What does that mean that the sea is going to be gone? And there's two different ways to interpret this. The literal way, like in the new heaven, there's no more ocean, there's no more sea. And then figuratively and symbolically, and again, I, I feel like I, I find myself gravitating somewhere in the middle. The sea took, ha, had a powerful representation for first century uh, people who lived in the Near East. And, and in Jewish culture, the sea represented a lot of things that were not actually good. The sea represented this violent, untamable force of destruction and death. The sea represents this space and, and a chasm between me and someone else over there that, that I couldn't cross. The sea represented fear. Oftentimes we see in scripture that the sea represents a place where evil resides deep in the bowels of the sea. And so, John may have been writing this from this context that, that would have been understandable to the, the Christians that he was writing it to and to the Jews that he was writing it to. He's saying, look, 
There's going to be no more sea. Guys, we don't have to fear anymore. We don't have to fear of loss and pain and suffering at the hands of the oceans of the world. We don't have to fear death in them. That could have been what John was saying. And it also could have been literal that he's saying, look, there's no more ocean. Well, what does that mean, especially for the people that, that love the sea? And what does it mean when God said that what he made was good? Is he now recanting and changing his mind on that? I don't have the exact answer, but what I do believe is that when God recreates this earth, the Bible's clear, and we read it even earlier in Revelation 22, there will be water on the earth. Water is essential to human life. And we know that when we get to heaven, we don't become angels, we don't become gods, we don't, we, we're us. And so there will be water on the new earth. What that looks like, I'm not sure. But I think part of what John was saying is, look, what God is going to do is restore everything in such a way that we're gonna live in freedom and vitality and with life. We're not gonna walk around feeling oppressed and afraid anymore. These things that have been pressing in on you and weighing in on you, God is going to make them right and restore and renew them. And so we know on the new earth, there's going to be some kind of water. It's interesting when you start to kind of follow these rabbit trails Archaeologists and geologists and those smart people, uh, some of them believe that maybe before the flood, we didn't have the continental divides that we do now. And that the, the massive upheaval and cataclysmic events of the flood fractured the earth into the continents that we know today. We, I don't, we don't know that for sure. But what John is saying is you can trust God with your future. You can trust him and not in a abstract way, but what he has planned for you is going to be perfect and right. And so that's one way that we can approach uh, that verse. So he says in verse two, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And again, we, we feel like, oh, this, that's just symbolic of the church. And, and there might be part of that in there. But if we jump forward to verse nine, it says this, then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, come with me, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain. Let's just stop there for a second. So are we going to experience geography on this new earth? Is Niagara Falls going to be Niagara Falls? Is Mount Everest gonna be Mount Everest? We know at least from this that there's one mountain on the new earth and it doesn't say the mountain indicating that there's only one, it's, it says a mountain. What's so liberating for me about this is that our innate desire to discover 
and to see and to ponder and to experience the greatness and the glory and majesty of God will be fulfilled as we explore everything that he's made. The, the Bible says that everything that he's made declares his glory and his greatness. Do you not think even more so in heaven that what he's made will shout of his greatness and his glory and will, will remind us of who he is day after day, night after night. In a former life when I was younger, my dream was to be a helicopter ski guide. And uh, I'd started down this road. I loved, I was living out west, so you're not a helicopter ski guide at Blue Mountain, obviously. <laughs> but I was living in the mountains where you could be one. And uh, my dream was to be a helicopter ski guide. And one, I love skiing and it's been a huge part of my life. But two, when I'm in the mountains and when I'm climbing mountains, I've climbed a bunch of them, when, I, when I'm on the, on the top of a mountain looking at the peaks all around me as far as I can see in the valleys thousands and thousands of feet below, when I'm there I'm reminded of how small I am and how great and grand God is. His majesty and His beauty, it just, it just overwhelms me. And I can imagine myself on this new earth discovering peaks and, and mountains and valleys and, and doing these things. Why? Because God created them to remind me of his greatness and his glory. He created them so that we could enjoy, that we could enjoy him through them. So we know there's going to be one mountain at least. Hopefully more. Um, and then it says this, that descending out of heaven from God, this city sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper as clear as crystal. The city wall was broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who I talked to held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates and its wall. When he measured it, he found it was a square as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick according to the human standard used by the angel. So if heaven is not physical and the new Jerusalem is just symbolic of us, then why would this angel go to the length to say, I'm using your own measurement standard so that you understand how great and majestic this will be? If it's just symbolism, why go to all that length? There's no need to do that. And it goes on, we, you can read it here, it's just fascinating. It goes on to describe the different stones that make up the wall. And then it goes on to describe its gates. And I want to land there in verse 21. The 12 gates were made of pearls, each gate from a single pearl. And the main street was pure gold, as clear as glass. 
I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb were its temple. And the city had no need for sun and moon. I just want to stop there real quick because this is another one. We always assume, we make assumptions based on quick reading. We assume that there's going to be no sun or moon. In none of the verses that talk about there being no sun or moon, does it say there's not going to be? It says there's no need for them. Doesn't say that God isn't going to recreate the things that he's already made. It says that they don't need them because the presence of Jesus and his glory will outshine them. That we're not going to marvel at those things ahead of or in, or. or or before Jesus, that we're going to marvel at Jesus and what he's done for us and what he's made for us. Just think about that. It's, it's fine to talk about all of this stuff, but at the end of the day, what's the point sometimes we ask ourselves? Does it really matter? Does it make a difference? like we've seen already today and talked about, I believe that it does. Because I believe when we have a right perspective of what God has waiting for us, it'll give us the strength and the courage and the hope we need to face the struggles and trials of today. Just like Marky's story and just like John writing to these early first century Christians who were living in an era of incredible violence against the church. It mattered what they thought. Commentators have speculated and, and wondered uh, these, these, these pearls, these ginormous pearls that are the gates of the city are carved out of them. Why pearls? And in the ancient Near East, the, poor, the pearl was the most valuable treasured stone. And I wonder if what God is saying by that, and these commentators have speculated too, I wonder if what God is saying is, look, as we think about a pearl and what it takes for a pearl to become a pearl, the massive forces of compression and friction, it's almost like the pearl has to go through death before there can be life. And in some way, it's like Jesus saying, look, I am the only way, I am the gateway, the entrance into this life that I have planned for you. And I paid for it at an incredible cost. I paid for it through the suffering and bruising and tearing of my flesh and the piercing of my hands and my feet. I paid for it so that you could walk in freely and enjoy an eternity with me that is unlike anything you've ever experienced on this earth. We get glimpses of what it will be like, but we have no idea. And I wanna to submit to you, if you have believed that somehow heaven is going to be less than 
what you experience today, less interesting or less majestic or beautiful, less powerful, then you've bought into the lie of the enemy who wants you to believe that it's not even worth thinking about. And as we close today, I just want to leave you with that imagery of those humongous gates carved out of these ginormous pearls. And the entrance fee for that city came at a great cost. A great, great cost. Jesus has said to us, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to heaven except by believing in me and trusting me. I'm not sure where you're at in your faith journey right now. Maybe you've been going to church for a long time or a Christian for a long time, but you've forgotten the magnitude and the weight of that that what God has planned for you, what he's done for you, can give you the strength you need to carry you through today and tomorrow and the next day. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We genuinely hope that you are inspired and challenged in your faith by what you heard. We'd love to invite you to connect with us online or even partner with us in ministry by going to mp.church forward slash give. See you next week.